You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. We claim that we won the Cold War. The facts are uh, the Russians beat themselves by adopting a, a flawed political system that was bound to fail. And it's wrong for the Reagan administration, for example, to take credit for winning the Cold War. They didn't win it at all. Former U.S. Secretary of State Alexander Haig. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Today is March 30th, and it was 41 years ago today that a young man tried to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. Now, one of the most controversial things to happen in the aftermath of the shooting that day was a statement made before live television by a man with a long and distinguished military and public service career, General Alexander Haig. A graduate of West Point, Haig served in Korea. He served in Vietnam. He won the Silver Star, the Purple Heart. He eventually became the youngest four-star general ever. In 1973, Haig became chief of staff to President Richard Nixon, just as the Watergate scandal was coming to a full boil. In fact, many say that Haig is among those who helped persuade President Nixon to resign in 1974. In 1980, after he was elected president, Ronald Reagan named Alexander Haig his Secretary of State. And on March 30, 1981, after John Hinckley Jr. fired bullets that put Ronald Reagan in the hospital, General Alexander Haig, back at the White House, went before the cameras and made a controversial statement that would haunt him for years. Who is making the decisions for the government right now? Who's making the decisions? Constitutionally, gentlemen, you have the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state in that order. And should the president decide he wants to transfer the helm to the vice president, he, he will do so. As of now, I am in control here in the White House pending return of the vice president and in, in close touch with him. If something came up, I would check with him, of course. Now, in 1992, Alexander Haig wrote a book called Inner Circles, and that's when I had the chance to meet him and talk about his long and distinguished career. So here now from 1992, General Alexander Haig. I've lived through uh, remarkable events, and fate has put me in a position where I was very close to the decision levels in a number of the major crises of the Cold War. Uh, most importantly, I felt an obligation to set the record straight, so to speak, with respect to Watergate. Uh, my story had never been told, and it does reveal in this book a number of heretofore uh, unre unknown facts and figures, and in some instances it shows that some of the so-called heroes of Watergate were really the bums, and many of the bums were the true heroes. You were not Deep Throat, though, were you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I wasn't, and uh, I'm happy to say that uh, both of the authors uh, of uh, The Final Days have confirmed that publicly recently and reiterated it, and that's Woodward and Bernstein. But the facts are I wasn't even in the White, White House when Deep Throat was operating uh, at full, full bore. Is this book a, a book about you, or is it about the Cold War? Is it about both? Uh... Well, it is both in that it's autobiographic, uh, and that means that uh, uh, when one reads it, uh, they must understand that I'm focusing on issues that I witnessed firsthand. And this is not a definitive history of the Cold War, per se, but rather an autobiographic version of the Cold War as I saw it. Now, that would leave some critics, perhaps, to say, well, why didn't he cover uh, economics, and why didn't he cover this or that? 
Well, it wasn't my intent to do that because there I would have been involved in, in somebody else's experiences rather than my own. It is fascinating, as I was telling you before the tape, it is fascinating for me, the reader to, who loves history, to go through this book and, and sample the chapters and see your take, for example, on, on the, the Kennedy assassination and, and how it fit into the Cold War, the beginning of Vietnam and the escalation of the war, uh, the end of the Johnson presidency, all these things that, that we see now from your perspective, which is in many cases a very different perspective than we've seen before. Well, it is. Uh, we are the victims of what I call historic reconstruction and that usually is that the those in power make the history uh, an administration for example during the Reagan years could portray uh, events uh, and they did because the press listened to them they had the influence and if you had an active uh, leaker like Jim Baker uh, they reconstructed history uh, that happened in both parties and it, it's an outrageous distortion of the truth for example, we claim that uh, we won the Cold War. The facts are uh, the Russians beat themselves by <laughs> adopting a, a flawed political system that was bound to fail. And it's wrong for the Reagan administration, for example, to take credit for winning the Cold War. They didn't win it at all. And as a matter of fact, the war for values, excellence in values, continues. But it seems logical, though, to say that if if Ronald Reagan had not applied the continuous pressure that he did, that the Soviet Union would not have crumbled. Well, I I would like to take credit for that because I was a strong advocate of applying that pressure in the early period of the Reagan presidency. And that's when it was most vigorous, as a matter of fact. But it would be a distortion of history. The facts are that communism was defeated by its own internal contradictions. And as one who served in seven presidencies, uh, let me tell you, whether it was a Democrat or a Republican, they all struggled uh, to contain Soviet aggression. Some did it more competently than others, and I think Reagan was one of the more competent in terms of standing up to them. On the other hand, it wasn't that that defeated them. That's one of the problems in Washington today because the corollary of that logic is that if being tough made Gorby a good boy, now that Gorby's a good boy, we no longer have to be tough and we're beginning a unilateral disarmament program, which is mind-boggling and repetitious of the mistakes of the past. That is a theme of your book, is it not, that, that we must not repeat the themes? You, you, the perspective that you give us on the Cold War in general, you say it was a war that need not have been waged in the first place, Absolutely but it was misperceptions. Right. Misperceptions, a, a dreadful misreading of our own assets and the conduct of that conflict, and a fundamental misreading of the assets available to the Marxist. Uh, this was a tragic thing. It was dominated mostly by fear of nuclear conflict which here at home was uh, made the centerpiece of most democratic administration's policies and became a, a self-defeating preoccupation in many respects. And what's, what's so chilling, the chapters that you have on Vietnam, it is so chilling to think that for all those years we assumed that China was backing or would back the North Vietnamese when you found out in 1972 that wasn't the case at all. Absolutely, and of course we suspected that and as early as 1969. We should have suspected it as early as the Korean War because in Korea, the Chinese entry uh, was not so much in behalf of uh, the Soviet proxy, North Korea, but rather the paranoia that was generated by our approaching 
their borders and the conception that we were going to launch an invasion from Taiwan and from the north uh, through North Korea to overturn the new government that had just uh, come in, the Marxist government. But, be but because we didn't understand the dynamics of the relationship between the Soviet Union and China, we got stuck in Vietnam. No question. As we did, got stalemated in Korea, we got stuck in Vietnam. And had we always had the clear-headedness to know who the true villain was, the Soviet Union, and dealt with that problem more directly, using our multiplicity of assets, I think we could have avoided armed conflict and, and leveraged our assets, which were substantial, into a far more moderate uh, Soviet stance. Were we just too timid to do that? Uh, well, sometimes we were too clever by far. Uh, I talk about the wrong way to conduct combat, for example. That uh, you don't, It's not a game for, for dilettantes, uh, Harvard staffers who come down for cycles of two to four years to, uh, to tell uh, experienced professionals how to run wars. Uh, these are dangerous fellows, and they dominated the, the Pentagon's strategy uh, calculus to, from almost the Kennedy days forward, although there was a lot of it in, in Korea during the, uh, during the Truman administration. And it was only Eisenhower who settled that conflict by threatening to use the nuclear weapon, uh, not only in the north, but against Moscow if necessary. And he got a settlement uh, very quickly. He was also, as a, one other new book uh, says this week, probably the lowest rated among the approval ratings of all the pr modern presidents. Yes, he was, but history has increasingly uh, put some balance in that, as is doing for, for Richard Nixon. I was just going to ask you that. Have we, with the distance of some time now, been able to reassess his presidency? I think so. Uh, not to the point where he's vindicated for uh, his misjudgments. There are many living Americans that uh, will take that conviction to their grave that he was an evil president. Uh, the recent uh, revelations from Moscow, if you can imagine, uh, suggesting that Hiss was not a, a traitor, as, a, as a Nixon insisted, uh, is, is another uh, indication of what goes on. It's gotten more publicity than uh, almost anything I've seen <laughs> <laughs> in the press recently, even I, in the midst of a campaign. When you put the Watergate scandal in perspective, you look back at that at Eisenhower's the Sherman Adams affair, and that seems so innocent compared to the law-breaking and the cover-up and the conspiracy of Watergate. Well, the facts are uh, they are pitting, pitifully uh, different. Uh, Watergate was, was political mischief of the kind we've witnessed again in this campaign and we've seen before from both parties, Democrat and Republican. Another significant aspect of Watergate is that Nixon got in trouble because he tried to save his people, the Attorney General uh, Mitchell and uh, some staffers. He was not involved in the original law-breaking. If one looks at Iraq and uh, Irangate, one could make the case that the uh, criminality there was a result of a president trying to protect himself rather than his people. And I think history is going to be pretty harsh on that over time. Of course, there are entire books filled with what Nixon should have done at the time. And, uh, and you, you can replay that in your mind, I suppose, a thousand times as to what he should have done. I think he knows, knows himself what he should have done. Well, the biggest uh, misjudgment was failing uh, to burn the tapes. And I give a, an intimate... Uh, uh, 
exposition in my book on exactly what did happen, and it's never been properly portrayed, even by Nixon himself in his own book, for subjective reasons. Why are you, you suppose, the last of the major, the, the senior White House staffers to come out with your version? Well, I think I know enough about American history, I've experienced it enough to know that when one puts the truth out in a cauldron of uh, emotional uh, contradictions and, and uh, animosities, it's very unlikely that that truth will be uh, carefully assessed. It'll be discarded. And I wanted to wait until all the emotion of the Watergate period had, had passed and the, the reader could look a little more objectively and clear-headedly at the facts as they are presented. After this short break, Alexander Haig tells what happened on March 30th, 1981, why he said what he said, but also listen for his chilling prediction about what's happening today. Now back to my 1992 interview with General Alexander Haig. Let's go back to that episode for which you are sadly remembered so greatly that day in 1981. Everyone here in the newsroom, professional journalists who who knew that you were coming today said, ask him if he thinks he's in charge. It it has become almost a joke anymore. That's sad. And a lot of people said to me, how could you let the press get away with this? The people who believed my version. And, of course, I said, uh, and I would repeat, it wasn't the press's fault. This was fed by the White House staff, and it was fed with a a great deal of skill. Uh, Their concern was that I was a threat to to George Bush, uh, to Jim Baker, and to others in in a political sense. And my mistake was joining an administration that uh, uh, Mr. Reagan let uh, other people run for him, uh, and people whose own ambitions uh, uh, leave a lot to be desired, and we're going to see that uh, too, as history unfolds, believe me. But be that as it may, that crisis was totally distorted. Uh, what I did at Jim Baker's request is go to the White House, uh, assemble a, a cabinet group to manage the crisis while uh, he and the rest of the White House staff were bedwatching at the hospital. Uh, understandable. Now, the facts are that when we assembled that group, the only fellow who didn't show was Cap Weinberger. He came 20 minutes late and announced to the assembled group in the White House Situation Room that he had alerted our nuclear forces. I said, Cap, what uh, DEFCON did you put them on? And he said, what is a DEFCON? Well, now it's understandable. He'd only been in office a month. Uh, We finally uh, divined, uh, after some delay, what that DEFCON was, and it was a disaster because it would have been picked up by the Russians immediately, and was and also by the press, who keeps stringers at all our sack bases and missile sites. So we finally uh, convinced Cap to go back to normal because we knew that the Russians would conclude that we believed that they had tried to murder our president, and that was a very dangerous thing combined with nuclear alert. It could have triggered a nuclear conflict. At that moment, Mr. Speaks wandered back from the hospital into the White House press room, was asked who's running the government, and here's the spokesman for the president who replied, gosh, I don't know. This was on real-time television going to every capital of the world, and believe me, very unsettling. They then said, have we alerted our forces? Answer, gosh, I don't know. 
At that point, I grabbed uh, Dick Allen, the security advisor, ran up into the press room and said, I'm in control of the cabinet group here in the White House. Should something occur, we will be in touch with the vice president who's returning to Washington. That was what was said, but it was snipped neatly by CBS, Dan Rather, frankly, uh, who I've been informed was in close touch with the White House staff in the hospital that said this guy's got to be cut down to size. Well, that's probably true, but it certainly is a distortion of fact. And rates probably only the footnote that you gave it in this book, because it is basically just a footnote to your story. Well, it is a footnote, but I did uh, go into it in excruciating detail in my first book, <laughs> Caveat. <laughs> uh, so I was covered at both ends. <laughs> are, are, are you, in a sense, gratified that, that the, the Cold War, that there has been an end point, that you can write about it as a bracketed event? Well, there's no question that the Cold War has fundamentally changed. I do not think it's over. And for those of us who sit around here in Washington beating our breast uh, complacently that we've won the Cold War, that democracy has won over Marxism, we're deluding ourselves. The situation in the former Soviet Union, the CIS, is highly unpredictable. And as we sit here today, I would be willing to predict that the likelihood of an authoritarian, imperialist takeover in Russia is higher than is the success prospects for the CIS. And we are going to have to be very active in that regard. Let me ask you, if I may, on this Friday before our election, there's been a a number of military men, respected military leaders, who have backed Bill Clinton, they say they would rather have him in charge if there were a crisis than George Bush. How do you feel? Well, I first uh, look at the military men concerned. I know most of them, not all, and most of them for one reason or another have their own axe to grind, or for one reason or another have assumed uh, policy attitudes and a demeanor such as the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that would alienate them fundamentally from me in good military uh, strategic sense. For example, uh, that fellow was vehemently opposed uh, to the Gulf War. He predicted 200,000 American casualties. Now, here was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, X, uh, out pontificating against uh, his government's policies improperly, I may add. So I, I don't hold these men in high regard, and uh, I suppose I fit the classic mold. I was not only appalled by someone who avoided military service, although I certainly understand that and wrote about it at length in my book, How Wrong That War Was, but mostly the dissembling associated with what he did or did not do. And it goes beyond that, too. I'm not one that uh, believes that a man's moral performance should be uh, totally overlooked in the number of uh, assessments that one makes about our next president. Alexander Haig died in 2010. He was 85. And you can find easy Amazon links to General Alexander Haig's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure and listen to my 1988 interview with the man who was at Reagan's side that day outside the Washington Hilton Hotel, the man who himself was gravely injured, former press secretary James Brady. Does it make you self-conscious, all the attention that you get? At times it does. I don't mind it, but you never have a moment to yourself. See that fat guy over there in the wheelchair? Let me tell you his story. 
And then there are only like white on rice. And listen to my interview with the Secret Service agent who probably saved Ronald Reagan's life that day, Jerry Parr. I said, I'm taking you to the hospital. And I, I said it was a certain amount of authority and... He didn't argue. Even if he had argued, I would have said, well, I'm taking you anyway, and then you can fire me. I didn't tell him I thought he was hurt bad. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a woman who, for some five decades now, has been helping Americans figure out good manners. My 1990 interview with Miss Manners, Judith Martin. Would you send your child out onto the soccer field and say, never mind the rules, just you get the ball and do whatever you want? The child is going to get killed. In effect, that's what happens when you send a child out into life not knowing what people expect and how they are going to judge his perhaps very well-meant behavior. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. 